This week's Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by DigiCert. DigiCert is the world's premier high-assurance digital certificate provider, simplifying SSL, TLS, and PKI, and providing identity, authentication, and encryption solutions for the web and the Internet of Things. Check them out at digicert.com. Hello and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this spotlight edition of the podcast, sponsored by DigiCert. We are seeing states that have established their own type of COVID vaccine cards, electronic cards. But I think it's going to be much more difficult to get on board with a universal United States type of card like that. Other countries around the world are adopting this. People like in Japan and in in China, we're seeing these types of adoptions of these digital identities. But uh, again, it's going to depend on the country and the politics involved. If 2021 taught us anything, it is to expect the unexpected. The year started with an outright attack on the citadel of U.S. democracy that few predicted, and a pandemic that was supposed to be on the run ended the year with a global blitz of almost unprecedented magnitude. Those kinds of surprises might make you wary about predicting the future, But when it comes to phenomena like online security, encryption, and digital identities, some of the trend lines are a little bit easier to track. And here, once again, the COVID pandemic looms large in the new year as it did last year. What are some of the trends that we're going to see play out in 2022? And what might we expect on the cybersecurity and digital identity fronts in this new year? We invited Dean Cochlin from the firm DigiCert into the Security Ledger Studios to give us his thoughts. Dean is the Senior Director of Business Development at DigiCert. In this conversation, Dean and I talk about how the pandemic is going to continue to shape the behaviors of both employees and businesses in 2022. We talk about how some of the byproducts of the pandemic, like vaccine passports, for example, might give way to broader use of digital identities in places like Europe and Asia, and even North America. Dean talks about the growing demands for strong digital certificates for everything from vaccine passports to code signing for DevOps environments. We also talk about the growing reality of cloud sovereignty, a kind of balkanization of the internet that's happening as nations and even private firms look to bring data on their citizens or customers back home, whether for security or privacy reasons. Dean says that regional security boundaries affecting cloud data will continue to pop up in places like Europe and China in 2022, and they're going to have a big impact on business planning in this new year. To start off, I asked Dean to tell us a little bit about himself and the work he does at DigiCert. Dean Cochlin, I am the Senior Director of Business Development at DigiCert. Uh, I've been working in the field of public key infrastructure and security since around 1995. Uh, I'm involved with uh, industry standards and also bringing some new products to market, such as uh, verified MARC certificates, or VMCs for short. Uh, which is a new product that we just launched. But I'm also involved with uh, working with the industry standards team to work with different industry standards groups, for example, like the CA Browser Forum, of which I'm currently the chair, and other groups that uh, are involved in public key infrastructure and internet security. 
Dean, um, we're, we're here. Um, DigiCert put out a, a list of 2022 predictions. And as your, you and your, your fellow cognoscenti there at DigiCert put on your special glasses for seeing into the future, right? Some of the ideas that have come to mind or things that you think we might be seeing from a security risk identity standpoint, uh, encryption standpoint in the year ahead. It's hard to talk about 2021 or 2020 or 2022 without talking about the coronavirus, COVID, uh, COVID-19, although COVID-19 sounds like kind of a quaint name now. Um, <laughs> but this is the elephant in the living room of uh, families, communities, businesses, uh, industries, governments. So I think it probably is appropriate and right that we'll talk about your thoughts on what COVID's impact on the you know information security field is going to be in and the work that companies like DigiCert do in the year ahead in 2022. So just reading DigiCert's predictions, one of them is that the changes that we've seen as a result of COVID, like huge shift to remote work, people left their offices, started working from home or, or wherever, as well as you know a, a real shift in the risk landscape, that even if we see a change in COVID, COVID kind of recedes as a problem, you don't expect uh, that we're going to see changes in, in some of those changes in 2022. Talk about that. What is the long haul COVID from the perspective of employers in terms of you know, the changes in how their uh, organizations are going to run and, and how and where employees are going to be working? Well, look, you know, here we are, it's the end of 21, and just as we thought things were improving, uh, <laughs> out comes Omicron uh, yeah. with yeah. Uh, new threats <laughs> and, and fears. Yeah. I mean, quite, quite frankly, uh, as people started moving back into the office, going to sports events and, and gathering again, suddenly we're looking at lockdowns again. And this has created a lot of fear and anxiety amongst employees who... Uh, started to think that they were going to go back into the office, maybe not full-time, but at least some part-time. What happened in 21 and even in beginning at the end of 20 is that uh, more and more employees were forced to work remotely, and most of them had become isolated. And of course, we're all used to Zoom and WebEx and uh, other types of technologies to create this remote work environment and be productive. And suddenly we are continuing in that environment, unfortunately. <laughs> and, and even as you know, we were planning all these shows and events, a lot of them did happen in 21. There are big plans for 22. And now those plans are being re-looked at and saying, well, do we really want to gather 10,000 people at an event in Vegas? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's really, it's been really quite sudden. I mean, it was only a few weeks ago, I think, that we first started hearing about this new variant. And now, it, of course, it's, you know, it's incredibly, spreads incredibly quickly and it's kind of racing around the world. And so I'm guessing, you know, from the from the perspective of, you know, cyber risk management on the part of organizations, then 2022, you're, you're going to be dealing with some of the many of the same issues that you, that you were dealing with in 2020 and 2021. That's right. So basically, this boundary that we used to have being in the office, this physical boundary no longer exists. We have, as, an, as IT professionals, we have to extend that boundary to people's homes and people's mobile devices to ensure that we're not being spoofed by hackers and they're entering our networks illegally. Uh, and so this, this provides an opportunity for IT to really get out there and make sure that the networks are as secure as they can be while also protecting the right of employees to do their work uh, from their remote location. It's, a, it's an interesting challenge. It's one that creates a balance and a security uh, requirement 
that unfortunately we have to continue into 2022 and probably beyond. You know, even if the virus does recede, we're not going to see a sudden surge of people on the on the commuter rail and on the trains and on the highways. There's still going to be an element that is going to be working remotely and will will likely continue to work remotely. I mean, look what's happened in 2021. We had this great resignation. You know, why did that happen? That people were forced to go back to work and they didn't want to work. That might be part of the reason. Um, but people want to work remotely. It's at least some part of the week. And that is going to continue beyond the pandemic. You know, one of the things that we've seen as a result of COVID, of course, is an increased focus on digital credentials. And, and obviously the, the use case for this is, is vaccine passports and, and different countries to different degrees have really used um, vaccine passports as a way to segregate uh, vaccinated from unvaccinated people, allow them to open up in, in a controlled way and give, give access to people who, who don't pose a risk of infection. So we've seen that, in, you know, most notably, of course, in, in countries like China, where they've really, you know, used it pretty extensively, but also in European countries like Germany and France, and even here in the United States, places like New York City, New York State, um, have made use of these digital passports. Part of the DigiCert predictions for 2022 is that these types of digital credentials are going to become more common, um, whether they're you know, vaccine passport related or or other use cases. You talk about the, I think it's EIDAS, IDAS regulation in the EU uh, as one example. Talk about that. Obviously, this whole notion is is con- controversial, um, particularly amongst kind of libertarian or, or even civil liberties kind of focused folks as to whether um, we should be using these at all. But um, what do you see happening? Do, do you see, first of all, more widespread use of vaccine passports in 2022? And outside of the COVID context, um, how do you how do you see um, digital identities, you know, expanding in 2022? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, the COVID vaccine passports and digital identities kind of go hand in hand. And we're seeing a remarkable use of this technology, more so in Europe right now, uh, as the European Union tries to come up with a common market for uh, services and goods, using these types of digital credentials is one way to make it much more efficient. And the uh, regulation you refer to, the EIDAS regulation, uh, has been updated now uh, to allow for easier cross-border transaction and the use of these digital identities. Now, part of these digital identities is, of course, uh, digital certificates and public key infrastructure. Uh, This is the best way to secure uh, electronic types of transactions. And one use case of these identities is the digital passport for uh, COVID, but also uh, to do cross-border transactions. So if you are a resident of France and you're buying a property in Greece, you'll be able to use your uh, electronic identity to sign mortgage papers or deed transfer papers, uh, all without having to do physical signatures. Uh, This is a huge benefit for doing these cross-border transactions, whether they be for contracts, for personal purchases, or for corporate purchases. And when you think about all the businesses doing cross-border transactions in the EU, you know, a a seller from uh, Italy wants to sell products in Norway. Being able to do these transactions electronically certainly saves a lot of time and money uh, in doing so. So we think that this type of uh, these types of things are going to continue and grow in Europe because of this regulation, which is essentially a framework. Uh, this sets the framework for how these transactions can take place, 
uh, who can issue these certificates, how these certificates must be issued, etc. In other countries, you know, for example, like you said, in the United States, we, we don't subscribe to the, uh, the fact about universal identity cards or anything like that. This is much more prevalent in Europe. So it's going to be a little bit more difficult here. I think we are seeing states that have established their own type of COVID vaccine cards, electronic cards. But I think it's going to be much more difficult to get on board with a universal United States type of card like that, just because of the reasons you stated. Other countries around the world are adopting this. People like in Japan and in, in China, we're seeing these types of adoptions of these digital identities. But uh, again, it's going to depend on the country and the politics involved. And generally, like if we look at the EIDAS regulations, who are the issuers of these documents? Are they, is this basically just a kind of digital replacement for, you know, physical papers and notaries and that type of process? Or are there kind of central identity granting authorities within these countries who who issue this along the lines of, you know, the Social Security Administration here in the United States or, or you know, the equivalent in European countries? Yeah, it's, it's, this is not meant to replace notaries or any of that type of thing. It's actually meant to augment them. So uh, the issuers of these credentials will be uh, what they call uh, trust service providers or TSPs. These are authorized by each of the EU member states, and they go onto a master list of all of the trust service providers in all of the different countries. So for example, in Spain, there might be 25 trust service providers, while in uh, uh, Italy, there might be 15 or something like that. Anyway, all of these trust service providers have to be authorized by the government in those locales, and they have to be audited, and all of that information goes into a central uh, location where it is checked and validated, and then they get put onto this master trust service list, or TSL. Those are the entities that will be able to issue these credentials. And as you asked about notaries, you know, notaries would also be parties to these transactions, so they would also get these credentials. And they would, they would be able to validate information that's being passed uh, from one entity to another. So it doesn't really replace notaries, but it really helps augment them to do it digitally versus the way they're doing it today. And DigiCert, obviously a major, one of the world's largest uh, certificate authorities. Are these trust authorities also certificate authorities or are they, would they, they would be customers of a country, of a company like DigiCert who would issue credentials for them to validate these various identities and credentials? Well, they could be certificate authorities that exist already in certain countries. Now, we have to be very careful when we say certificate authorities because there are public certificate authorities, which are the ones that I would say are trusted by browsers. And then you have country-specific uh, certificate authorities. Like, for example, in Spain, there are a bunch of certificate authorities that are not trusted by browsers but are used to issue credentials in that country for certain services, maybe for taxes or for healthcare or something like that. So uh, there could be certificate authorities that are also public certificate authorities on this trust list, but there could also be uh, certificate authorities that are not trusted by browsers and are only trusted by those countries uh, specifically. Really interesting. And I, I know here in the United States, I think we kind of like to think of ourselves as, uh, you know, on the, on the vanguard of everything. And yet in these areas, particularly around digital identities and, and digital transactions, we really aren't. We're really lagging pretty far behind, actually, is my impression. I don't know about you. Well, you know, in the U.S., they, they had a signature law back in the 90s that basically says an electronic signature is equivalent to a wet signature. Now, that's why things like DocuSign work in this country, because it doesn't require anything like a digital signature. You just need to like move your mouse on the screen, and that's an electronic signature, and that's captured, and that's, that's legal by law here. 
you know, having the digital credential side has never advanced in this country. It's, it's something that I think has been proposed and it did happen in certain states, but it happened early on and it was way ahead of its time. There's an opportunity now to correct that and have states go forward with digital signatures. Uh, and certain states are moving in that direction, but the, the United States as a whole, I haven't really seen any proposed legislation around that right now. Yeah, I was going to say, is there is there anything brewing on Capitol Hill or even in state legislatures, um, you know, on, on this matter? Right now, everybody's so concerned with cybersecurity and some of the breaches and things like that and the ransomware, which I'm sure we'll get into, that uh, the other stuff is on the back burner. So there's more things to focus on right now that are more prevalent that, that unfortunately forced the other stuff to the back. Obviously, 2021, one of the notable trends is, you know, just increased profile, I would say. It's not a new phenomenon, but definitely the increased profile of software supply chain attacks. Uh, we saw SolarWinds, Kaseya, uh, and and others. And obviously with, with DevOps, really pretty much the predominant trend in software development, application development, um, you know, there's just a lot of attention right now on software supply chain security and kind of the the components that go into modern applications. You know, one of the solutions around supply chain risk is digital code signing, like, you know, really just a verifying components with, within your supply chain. What do you expect to see on that trend in, in the next year? Again, given the attention that organizations are placing now on the integrity of the code that they're getting from, from uh, third-party vendors and, and service providers. Right. I mean, you, you hit it right on the head there. The solar winds breach was a serious breach that brought to light the fact that code that has been used or reused uh, may not be authentic or may have been modified. And so di digital code signing, which is nothing new, it's been around since the 90s, digital code signing has become uh, of greater importance to organizations so that they know the code that they are working on the next day is the code that was worked on last night. Uh, and so we're seeing uh, organizations asking, hey, how can we sign code continuously? We're, we're in a DevOps organization. We want to be able to sign code so that we know that when that person goes home at night, the next day when it gets picked up, or maybe later that evening when it's picked up by someone in another time zone, that that code has not been modified and is the code that they expect it to be. And that's where digital code signing comes in. And the fact that what's, what's changed in code signing in the last 20 years is that now it can be automated. Uh, instead of having to uh, you know, go offline, run some command utility, and tell it to sign a piece of code, and then come back to your DevOps system, now within the same system, you can hit a button that says, sign this code, and it will get automatically signed either in the cloud or locally. Now, the other trend here is that uh, organizations are moving to cloud-based code signing. Instead of giving each developer a key, which can be lost or stolen or taken with them when they leave the company, having that code signed in the cloud allows for uh, control over who signs what. And you also get a report to see who signed it and when they signed it. So we have a much more granular look at how code is being signed and who's signing it and better security controls when it's done in the cloud. I mentioned I'm chair of the CA browser forum, but I'm also chair of a working group in the forum called the Code Signing Working Group. And our task is to help improve the code signing ecosystem by improving some of the security controls around code signing. We've seen in the past where uh, code signing keys have been stolen 
and they've been used to sign malware. And that same key was used to sign a printer driver, for example. And now, because that same key was used to sign malware, that key has to be revoked, and suddenly you've disabled every printer driver in the world. And so this brings to light the fact that you need individually different code signing keys to sign every piece of code. Uh, otherwise, you're going to fall into the printer driver problem. That sounds like a lot of keys. <laughs> it is a lot of keys, but let me give you an example. You know, I was talking to a colleague at Microsoft, and he said that they do over a billion signings a day. A billion. This is a huge number. And and they manage this all from a cloud-based signing service, uh, and keys are used to sign, and they're thrown away so that they cannot be reused. So this is possible. It's made possible. We've seen an example here where a large software company is using it to sign code and to keep their code secure. So this is definitely something that's possible, doable, and is being adopted by more and more organizations. And of course, as the world, as you know, kind of software eats the world, right? And we and we move to this Internet of Things, uh, which is, is already upon us, but of course is getting bigger all the time. You can project that that billion signings is probably going to mushroom even more as you have, you know, individual discrete, let's say, mechanical components that are authenticating to some larger device, right? Absolutely. That's all part of it. And actually, I don't know if you noticed in President Biden's executive order back in May, he said that we need to address the software supply chain security. And part of that, NIST is working on the solution to that. And part of the recommendation is to develop a software bill of materials. So just like you have the nutrition label on the side of your food item, your software will come with a bill of materials that says, here are all the items included in this software, maybe third-party software or open-source software. Here's when they were developed. Here's when they were signed, et cetera. And all of the code within has also been digitally signed throughout the process uh, without any gap. So this gives the uh, recipient a sign of integrity and confidence that the code has not been tampered with. Yeah, and and we're seeing an example of that right now with the vulnerability that was uh, recently discovered, right, in the uh, in the Apache component, right, and uh, Node4j. And, you know, one of the big challenges in the wake of that revelation, of course, was trying, you know, organizations trying to figure out, are, are we exposed to this? Are we using this component in, in any of our stuff? And it's a very, it's, a, it's an incredibly common uh, open source library and incredibly ubiquitous. And so just figuring out if you're vulnerable to this remote code execution vulnerability turns out to be a really complicated question. Software bill of materials in our in, in theory would make that a lot simpler to, to answer, right? Which is you could just look at everything you're using, look at the SBOM and say, yep, it's got, you know, Node4j in it. I, I would think so, yes. I mean, that seems to be uh, a way to be able to check that. But as you said, so far, the, the Log4j vulnerability is uh, much more ubiquitous than people think. It's not just in one piece of software. It's, it's quite a, in, in a few places. And so uh, it's, you're right. It's made it difficult for people to discover where this vulnerability is actually being used. So I think a software bill of materials would help uh, folks, as long as they don't lose that, <laughs> uh, help keep track of, of things like that. The other kind of big trend we saw, obviously, continuing trend is, is, is ransomware. Uh, and, and, and I think the stakes in these ransomware attacks are really escalating. We saw, of course, colonial pipeline attack, the JBS attack. I saw an, an, an item earlier this week, uh, a propane, major propane distributor uh, got, got felled by ransomware. 
uh, school districts. So just the um, the coincidence of ransomware attacks and critical infrastructure providers, public sector, private sector is is really you know that the, the profile of those types of attacks really went way up in 2021. What are your thoughts on what we're going to see in 2022? And you know, did you cert as a as a, a certificate authority, PKI, a certificate provider? Um, what what uh, what's your dog in the ransomware fight? How how can the, you know your technology and infrastructure be leveraged to help with a problem like ransomware? Well, let me address the first part. I mean, ransomware is rampant and it's not going away because it makes criminals money. And as long as companies decide that it's cheaper to pay the ransomware than to try to recover their business, uh, then it's going to be continue to be successful. Why are companies just paying the ransomware? Probably because they're not prepared. They don't have a disaster recovery plan. They don't have a business resumption plan. And we're seeing uh, evidence of this in some of the uh, attacks that we saw this year. Uh, some of these businesses are public utilities, uh, but some are also large companies that should have these plans in place, you know, like disaster recovery and backup plans uh, that are not infected by this ransomware and that they could recover from. Uh, you may have seen recently that the CISA, the uh, Cybersecurity Infrastructure a group from the government issued an order regarding trains in this country. And suddenly this just came out that uh, passenger trains, freight trains were all advised to check their networks and uh, look out for certain cyber attacks. So I assume that this is a result of some information that they got and they suddenly put out this order. So, uh, you know, I was when I saw this, I said, well, why trains? You know, why not, uh, you know, water treatment plants or something like that? But Clearly, it's something that they picked up on and they put out this order. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't come from nowhere. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, we should we should presume. Yeah, but we're seeing you know these 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 attacks continuing to happen because of stolen credentials or weak passwords, uh, because you know organizations sometimes don't take the care they need to to protect their infrastructure with things like two factor authentication. Or, or digital certificates, which are strong authentication to the network. And, and we're seeing more organizations start to utilize digital certificates, whether they be uh, in software or whether they be on an external hardware device, to require users to be able to use that before getting on the network. This helps protect the network and keep out the uh, ransomware uh, folks, the cyber criminals. Now, certainly, they're going to try different ways to get in. They're going to try, if they can't get in using passwords and stolen credentials. They're going to try to uh, use phishing attacks to attract people to certain websites, which may contain malware, which will then expose the network. Uh, so organizations have to be uh, looking at this very carefully and being protective of uh, websites that they go to either by whitelisting websites or providing some of the types of controls to ensure that uh, they're not phished, employees are not phished and are not getting tricked into clicking on these links. And at the same time, you know, we, this all goes sort of towards the whole idea of, of, of zero trust. And this is a, sort of a big word nowadays, you know, zero trust. And what does that mean? That means, you know, trust nothing. But I think I, I usually add a little appendage to that. I say trust nothing but challenge everything. And so that's saying, look, at, we're not going to trust anything that we, we, we see. We're going to challenge everything and make sure that everything is right to be on our network. One of the interesting predictions you have in, in uh, DigiCert has in its 2022 predictions is around a phenomenon that you guys call cloud sovereignty or a trend. Um, I think that's a good name for it, uh, which is that, you know, industries uh, and governments even 
are increasingly building dedicated infrastructure to support uh, their customers and data, either because of um, local data privacy regulations or in the case of countries like China, because of you know national security or sovereignty issues uh, or, or priorities. But the big picture is one really of balkanization um, of the internet, uh, in which you know where data lives and who controls it is increasingly. While there are no borders on the internet, there are now virtual borders <laughs> that tend to correspond with with physical borders. Talk about that a little bit, and and also how you see this um, uh, this question or problem um, evolving in the next year. Absolutely, there. You know, we're seeing regional security requirements in different parts of the world, and you know, just as you mentioned, China. You know, Microsoft has had to change their game in China uh, around their uh, their Bing search engine service and around their LinkedIn service. Uh, we're also seeing boundaries for data in the in the European Union. And in fact, that's affecting us. Uh, we have to set up our own infrastructures to accommodate uh, EU privacy laws such that data cannot be extracted and brought to the United States, for example. Uh, and, and this is causing the need for these uh, this cloud sovereignty, uh, as you mentioned, uh, because data, certain governments restrict the way data can travel. And maybe not just governments, maybe also companies or organizations decide that they don't want data to be going across different boundaries. And this could be for reasons of privacy, but it could also be for reasons of law enforcement. Uh, we've seen cases where uh, there, were, there were criminal operations happening in one country, and it turned out the data was being hosted in another country. They tried to get at that data, and in some cases they were successful. In other cases, uh, due to laws, they were unsuccessful. So we're going to continue to see these boundaries around cloud infrastructures appear. And I think that uh, the security is paramount now because now we've got data in different places and we want to make sure that that data is pure and, and, and away from cyber criminals. So, Dean, you're the Senior Director of Business Development at DigiCert and obviously uh, in that capacity, working on new products and new ideas, new services. And um, before we came on the podcast, you were talking about one called, I think it's called Verified Mark. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what it does? This is a project I've been involved with for, involved with for over two years, uh, started by an organization called the BIMI Group, B-I-M-I. And basically what it says is it allows your company's logo to be placed next to the from field in an email. And this has been adopted by Gmail, and it was launched in July this past year, in 2021. And so now that companies can uh, show their logo next to that from field, and all the recipients can see that logo. Now, this is a great marketing tool. It allows uh, for your logo and your brand impressions to get out there. And you can have, uh, if you have different logos for different divisions or maybe for different seasonal times of the year, those logos can be displayed as well. Now, there's also a security benefit to this because in order to allow for that logo to display, your company's email domain must have DMARC enforced. Uh, DMARC is a security technology which prevents spoofers from pretending to be you and using your email domain. And that DMARC enforced means that it has to have a policy of reject or quarantine. If you have a policy of none, that's not going to work. So the incentive here is for marketers to get their logo out there, but at the same time to get their IT departments to enforce DMARC 
and create a much better security environment for email. There wasn't a huge number of domains that were DMARC enforced, but that's starting to change. And, and I think this incentive, uh, Gmail, of course, is the largest email provider on the planet. Now being able to showcase your logo to your end users, to your customers, to your prospects, uh, really helps. That's a big benefit. Yeah, it's a real big benefit. And I think marketers really love it. And we're starting to see some great traction in the market for VMCs. Well, we'll be keeping our eye on that among uh, the other uh, trends that, uh, that you pointed out to us. Dean Coughlin of DigiCert, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Dean Coughlin is the Senior Director of Business Development at DigiCert. He was here to talk about some of that company's predictions for 2022. This week's Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by DigiCert. DigiCert is the world's premier high-assurance digital certificate provider, simplifying SSL, TLS, and PKI, and providing identity, authentication, and encryption solutions for the web and the Internet of Things. Check them out at digicert.com.